0: Humans are extraordinary creatures, capable of sublime creativity, resilience, and compassion. But there's no denying we also have an ugly side. We can be lazy, selfish, and even cruel. Many thinkers have wondered if this ugly side can be overcome, whether through education, discipline, or some other approach. But the 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau went a step further. He wanted to know where our selfish tendencies come from, Were humans born selfish or were they made that way? He explored these questions
1: in his 1762 work, The Social Contract. I first encountered Rousseau's social contract my first day as a freshman in high school because the teacher of that world history course wrote on the blackboard, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. My name is James Kloppenberg. I teach history at Harvard University. This is the opening sentence to the social contract. Rousseau was a vocal critic of
0: refined European society and monarchical power. In the social contract and other writings, Rousseau argued that humans are born good, but that society corrupts them. In order for humans to truly flourish, society had to be reformed. Rousseau's theories of reform were incredibly influential and remain so today, even, for example, in the state that I live in.
1: When John Adams is asked to write the Constitution for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in 1780, the, the Constitution that's still in place, he writes to a friend after he's written his draft. It is Sidney and Locke, Rousseau and Maublé, reduced to practice. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world.
0: I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor James Kloppenberg to discuss Jean-Jacques Rousseau's The Social Contract.
1: Rousseau was born in 1712 in Geneva. His uh, mother dies a very early in his life. His father sends him to his brother and his wife to raise Rousseau, and he's very happy there. It's a very prosperous, well-to-do family in Geneva. But when he was 13, Rousseau was apprenticed to an engraver. It didn't go well. He wasn't
0: very good at it. He didn't enjoy it. And one of the men who employed him was physically abusive. One day, when he was 15, Rousseau went out with some friends outside of the city.
1: As he's coming back to Geneva, the gatekeeper closes the gate to the city. And Rousseau had already been beaten for missing his curfew uh, a little bit earlier. And this time he decides, I just don't want to do this anymore. And so he takes off. He basically hits the road. He goes uh, south from Geneva, through uh, the Italian city of Turin. He returns to what is now France, uh, to the city of Chambéry, where he resides with a woman named Madame de Varon, who is a surrogate mother and a teacher and then his lover. During this time,
0: Rousseau supported himself by working different jobs as a servant, tutor, and secretary. He took advantage of Madame de Varon's vast library, reading everything he could get his hands on. Madame de Varon was also a music enthusiast and arranged formal music lessons for Rousseau. He eventually developed his own form of musical notation and traveled to Paris
1: to present it to the French Academy of Sciences. It intrigues a number of people, including the king and including um, Marie Antoinette. And he befriends some very influential families, the the Mablis, um, who are family that give us um, both the Abbé de Mobley and also Condillac, who are two important figures in the uh, world of the French Enlightenment. Uh, Rousseau spends some time in their house again making use of their library. This same year, Rousseau befriended the French philosopher
0: Denis Diderot. They shared many conversations about literature, and eventually, along with other thinkers such as D'Alembert, became part of a leading intellectual group known as the Philosophes. Diderot was appointed editor of a new project to write the first encyclopedia, known as the French Encyclopédie. Rousseau contributed many articles to the sections on music and the economy. This work helped establish Rousseau's name in intellectual circles, but his real claim to fame would come later.
1: He becomes much better known as a result of two essays that he writes in response to a prize that the Academy of Dijon organizes, and he writes what come to be known as the First Discourse and the Second Discourse. He wins both of those prizes, and that really puts him on the map. Part of the argument of both of Rousseau's discourses is that the problem with 18th century French culture is that people are dependent on the wealthy. And Rousseau argues in both of his discourses that the wealth itself is an artificial creation of a degenerate society. And so rather than continuing to be dependent on his wealthy uh, patrons, he decides he's going to try to go it alone simply um, doing musical transcriptions and doing the the kind of work of 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 a craftsman rather than an intellectual. Rousseau continued writing
0: philosophical works while also doing musical transcriptions.
1: In 1762, he publishes the two books that really do make his fame. One is Émile, a novel, which is actually a philosophical treatise on education, and the other is The Social Contract.
0: What is happening politically, culturally, economically that's influencing what he ends up responding to?
1: Both Geneva and France are oligarchies. I mean, there is a, a, a... a ruling group in Calvinist Geneva. And Rousseau is unhappy with the way in which this supposedly popular government, this Republican government, operates. The aristocracy has some authority, but the authority really emanates from the center out and from the top down. Rousseau thought this top-down way of government was corrupting its citizens. Rousseau thought that Individuals have the capacity to know what is just, what their moral obligations are, and that it is individual self-interest that blinds us to our duties. So from his point of view, the problem with civilization, the problem with the kinds of development that most members of the French uh, philosophical community prized that rise of refinement of politeness for Rousseau simply deflected people from their natural, simple lives and their inclinations toward virtue, both moral virtue and civic virtue, and led them to accentuate their own desires, their own impulses, to the detriment of that voice that gave them access to their duties.
0: In Rousseau's view, this is how society corrupts people, by altering their desires and natural inclinations away from moral and civic virtue and towards individual self-interest. Rousseau felt that refined society made its citizens more concerned with trying to impress and one-up each other than with striving for virtuous lives.
1: And for Rousseau, you have to ask the question, how is taste fed? Where do your preferences come from? Why do you want that as opposed to that? And that's the question Rousseau asks. What are the forms of power, what are the forms of cultural dynamics that lead you into this deranged conception of yourself such that wealth is the most important, perhaps even the only important thing to you, wealth, esteem, power? Instead, why do you not want the kind of ascetic life and the kind of benevolent relationships with others that we were created to want. For Rousseau, this type of refined
0: society began with the king. The monarchy structured society and created the rules for everyone to live by. But Rousseau believed in a government that protected the individual freedom of its citizens, which monarchies didn't really allow for. In an absolute monarchy, one sovereign ruler has all the power and makes laws as they see fit. But Rousseau didn't think the answer was just to get rid of monarchies. Because the monarchies, as problematic as they were, had brought order to a previously chaotic time.
1: This notion of absolute monarchy is really a post-Reformation idea. Part of what generates support for and makes sense of the idea of absolute authority is the carnage of the wars of religion that rack Europe throughout the uh, 16th century. In 1517, an obscure
0: German monk and theologian named Martin Luther expressed his dissatisfactions with some practices of the Catholic Church. When his calls for change were ultimately ignored, he felt he had no choice but to form a new, reformed Christian church. This reformation movement eventually grew much larger than the Catholic Church ever expected and led to centuries of horrific wars across Europe. Millions and millions of people were killed. In some areas, 30% of the population died as a result of these religious
1: wars. And in the aftermath of the wars of religion, a number of theorists argued that unless we have absolute authority, first in the king and the church, but then within each family, we're going to have chaos. Because ordinary people had shown themselves throughout the wars of religion in the 16th century perfectly capable of slaughtering each other. And so the idea that authority, rather than emanating from the top, out, and down, authority should bubble up from the people. And that's an idea that originates with the dissenting Calvinists, whom we call Puritans in uh, American history, and from the Presbyterians in Scotland. The wars of religion really then give people warrant for saying, we cannot allow this crazy idea of popular government to breathe, because if it does, it's going to end in chaos. So what we need is absolute, unquestioned authority and unquestioning obedience on the part of everybody else. But that notion of royal absolutism is, I think, generated in reaction to the wars of religion, and it draws its sustenance From the anxieties felt not only by kings and aristocracies, but also by ordinary people. That if given the chance, ordinary people will go crazy and start murdering each other. Following the nightmare of the wars of religion, philosophers were
0: trying to figure out what kind of government would be the best. One of the most profound thinkers working on this problem was the 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes argued for a powerful sovereign ruler chosen by the people he felt this was the best option to avoid the chaos and brutality experienced in the wars of religion. Hobbes' pessimistic view of human beings was that they would inevitably descend into lawless, violent chaos without a strong central authority. Without clear laws and a strong police force, humans would steal and kill to gain advantage. The only solution was a social contract among the people to choose a leader to ensure safety for all. But for Hobbes, once the leader is chosen, the people themselves couldn't be trusted to exercise power. Rousseau had a more optimistic view of humanity. Like Hobbes, Rousseau believed that humans do have the capacity to dissolve into chaos when governing themselves. But unlike Hobbes, Rousseau believed that this was because of the damaging effects of so-called refinement and politeness in society, not some inherent flaw in human nature. This was the central theme of his first and second discourses.
1: The first one arguing that the the degradation of morals really does descend from this rise of what is thought to be politeness and refinement because that gives rise to inequality and exactly the kind of gap between the rich and the poor that makes the poor dependent on the rich. And then in the second discourse, the Discourse on Inequality, he develops an argument that attempts to explain how this inequality begins. And he argues that the first person who said, this is mine, is the creator of civil society. That prior to the existence of property, people live in a state of rough equality because everybody exists under uh, conditions of, of subsistence. And once somebody fences off a piece of land and persuades other people to respect his claim, um, then you have the origin of inequality. And it spirals upward from there to the point that many people have not enough to survive and some people have so much more than they need um, that it's completely unjustifiable from Rousseau's point of view. And in the discourse of inequality and in an article that he wrote for the encyclopedia called Political Economy, he's among the first to lay out a rationale for progressive taxation. He argues that when you have not enough to sustain yourself, you have a claim on the property of people who have more than they could possibly use or need. And his own experience with the uh, with Madame de Varon, with with the, um, then with the Moblis, then with the Dupuis in, in Chenalso, and then at the court of, of uh, the French king, Confirm everything he's been saying about the, uh, the 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 consequences of inequality, which are not only the grinding poverty of most people in France, but also the kind of mincing subservience that Rousseau witnessed at court, uh, that even the most wealthy and powerful aristocrats were constantly abasing themselves in the face, not just of the king, but of other people who were slightly higher ranked than they were. And from Rousseau's point of view, this made no sense whatsoever. So the critique of inequality in some ways comes out of his head and out of his reading of the classics, but in other ways, it comes out of his lived experience. So Rousseau's
0: discourse on inequality outlines the problems caused by the way society operates. And the social contract is about where to go from there. So what then, (laughs) in your view, what was Rousseau saying about state of nature, social contract, property, and how to address
1: inequality, and you know how how do we live together? Social contract is a treatise on government, uh, what constitutes legitimate government. And I think it is fair to consider Rousseau the most radical of the social contract theorists because he argues that the people form a government by coming together with each other. Both Hobbes and Locke had argued that the contract is between the people and their government. And Rousseau was really the first theorist of popular sovereignty, of those social contract theorists at least, who argues that authority remains with the people. Hobbes thought
0: people should elect a ruler, but then they have no say in the government after that. Rousseau believed that the people should run the government. Basically, it should be a representative democracy.
1: And from Rousseau's point of view, sovereignty can never be alienated. The people always retain their sovereign authority. He draws a distinction, an important distinction between sovereignty and government. But sovereignty, authority, power resides in the people. And that is something that distinguishes him not only from Hobbes, but also from Locke. The central idea, I think, of the social contract and the idea that has caused, I think, the greatest controversy among commentators is his idea of the general will. The general will is basically what's in
0: the best interest of the people. And Rousseau thought that had more authority than the will of any one ruler. The idea is if the law embodies the general will of the people and you obey the
1: law, you are obeying the general will of the people. And so the question is, how can you be sure that the law embodies the general will? And how can you know whether your own will is particular or whether your will aligns with the general will? What we have to do, he argues, is to find a way to constitute government so that individuals can resist the vices that are attendant on civilization and return to lives of virtue that were easier, that were more possible in an earlier historical moment. According
0: to Rousseau, people naturally have a will towards virtue. But in polite, refined society, that will has been corrupted. One's natural desires for virtue and a simple life have been replaced with self-centered interests these
1: interests become one's impulses. He says, if you simply follow your impulses, if you follow your appetites, then you're a slave to those impulses. You're a slave to those appetites. You are not really free. Because to be free is to align your will with what you must do, what you ought to do. So when he uses in the general, in the the social contract, the phrase you must be forced to be free. That's what he means. For Rousseau, freedom is liberation from the
0: artificial, selfish impulses imposed on you by society. Freedom is when those individual self-interests are replaced with the general interests of the community. In other words, freedom is when you wish for the common good. Rousseau illustrates this process of attaining freedom in his novel Émile. He shows this transformation through the main character, Emile, who's able to rise above his own self-interest for the general will.
1: And at that point, Rousseau says, he becomes a citizen. At that point, he is willing to repress his animal appetites, his perception of his self-interest, and instead to align his individual interest with the public interest or with the general will. The problem with this, of course, is how do you make it happen? Um, For Rousseau, the general will is an abstract principle. It's an ideal of justice. And it's it's the measuring stick by which any constitution or any kind of legislative activity should be measured. And for Rousseau, that has a significance that is independent of any individual's particular will or any individual group's particular will. If your individual will is unreflective, if your individual will is just whatever you feel like doing, then you are just a slave to your appetites. You're no better than an animal. And so what we need to do is to cultivate your sensibility in such a way that you will what is in the general interest. Rousseau defines the general will as the will of the people as a whole. And all of us in the United States have been raised to think that our will is paramount, is primary. Nobody can tell us what to wish. Even if they say, wear a mask or you'll kill somebody else. If I want not to wear a mask, that's my right, not to wear a mask. And Rousseau says, wait, stop, think. Is that wish on your part in in conformity to that principle of the public interest, the general will? And the answer, from my perspective, would be no, because you could kill not only yourself, you could kill somebody else. So Rousseau's entire project is devoted to getting people to question what they see as their own individual interest and instead to ask what is in the general interest. The challenge seems to be, though, is...
0: How do you discern what is
1: the common good among a diverse group of people? What he has in mind, I think, is a situation or a a culture and a set of institutions in which individuals select the people best able to discern the general will to be their representatives. And how do those people discern the general will? And the answer to that, I think, for Rousseau is universal, publicly funded education. Rousseau did
0: not believe the role of education was to make people more economically productive. That would perpetuate individual self-interest and the desire to accumulate wealth. Instead, he thought that the role of education was to cultivate citizens. Its purpose was to give people the capacity to see what is in the general public interest and what is in their own self-interest and be able to discern between the two and then to willingly choose the general interest of the people over their own self-interest.
1: And so the purpose of education was civics, basically, which has been now written out of almost all American curricula in favor of more math and writing. And that skill focus, I think, is just antithetical to what not only Rousseau, but most 18th century American thinkers believed education was supposed to do. Rousseau knew that it would be impossible for every single person to act
0: in the general will of the people. So instead, he thought the people should elect educated representatives who would act on behalf of the people they represented.
1: In what's known as the Geneva Manuscript, which is the rough draft of the social contract, Rousseau lays out a fairly elaborate critique of direct democracy. And little of it shows up in the social contract itself, but it's a very important argument, and I think it does fit perfectly with the argument in the published text of the social contract. And that argument is that whenever you have direct democracy, whenever you have an assembly that includes every citizen, then the tumult is going to be such that every individual is likelier to see his individual interest or the interest of his family or his region as sovereign. And it's only when you choose representatives and bring those representatives together that they have an opportunity to hear each other, to listen to each other's statement of their interests. And that from that interplay of separate individual interests can emerge, not must emerge, but can emerge something like the general will. And so representative democracy for Rousseau is not a second best or um, somehow undesirable form of government. It is instead the closest that human beings can come. In the social contract, he says, if we were writing a government for gods and not men, then democracy would be fine. But what he means by that is direct democracy would be fine. When he's asked by Poland and by Corsica to write constitutions he gives both of them versions of representative democracy. Because in both cases, even in the case of Corsica, even in this small island, he says, it's not possible for everybody to know everybody else, it's not possible for everybody to gather together uh, in the same place. You can only make it work by selecting out the people with the greatest civic virtue, the people who are judged to be the wisest and noblest of the citizens, and giving them the authority to make laws, which then should be submitted to the citizenry. So sovereignty remains with the people, but government and administration go to those who are best able to find the general will and to incorporate it in in what they um, offer as legislation.
0: France at the time was in no position to put Rousseau's ideas for a more equal society into practice, and he knew this. Before they could revamp the government and education system, they had to redistribute the wealth. The question of
1: how you construct from the horribly unequal conditions of the 18th century a more egalitarian and civically-minded culture... It's a question that Rousseau, again, was among the first to address by virtue of the uh, uh, tool of progressive taxation. In 18th century France, the nobility paid no taxes. Only taxes were paid only by the common people who had no say say in government whatsoever. There was no voice for the ordinary people, and yet they were the ones who paid to fund government and the church. From Rousseau's point of view, that was backwards. He argued that the richer you are, the greater your debt to society and the higher your obligation should be. And the argument was not just the fairness of taxation itself, but the purpose of taxation. And for Rousseau, it had an explicitly redistributive purpose. So that you took from the wealthiest, gave to the poorest, in order that inequality could be mitigated. So Rousseau was among the first to say, there's a way to deal with this. And it isn't to shut off enterprise or to shut off the attempt to create wealth, the only way you can deal with it is to say, once you have that wealth, we're going to redistribute a fraction of it to the people who have the least resources in order to attack this problem of rising inequality. How else is he
0: depicting his ideal society? Does he he paint a portrait of other elements that should be reformed? in in France and
1: across Europe? Rousseau doesn't, I think, maybe deliberately sketch his utopia because he thinks that it's going to look different for every culture at every moment in historical time, that Poland is a monarchy. And so when he's asked to write a constitution for Poland, he writes the constitution for a constitutional monarchy. And it has a federal system because Poland is a large... Uh, kingdom, and so you need to have authority split up into various um, pieces. Corsica is not so large, so it's possible to operate in a slightly different way, but I think that the awareness Rousseau shows in both of those exercises and in that dedication to Geneva that things are going to be different in every culture. I mean, some cultures, like Calvinist Geneva are intensely religious, other cultures uh, have either a different religion or less religions. some cultures have a tradition of centralized authority, other cultures have a tradition of local authority. So I think it's, it's our mania um, to find that in Rousseau that blinds us to his own uneasiness with the idea that one size fits all, and his sensitivity to the particularity of every time and place. And Rousseau himself says that it will never happen perfectly. That he says it would be like having a frictionless surface to have individual wills mesh perfectly with the general will. There's always going to be friction in this machine of government. And the question is, how do you deal with that friction? And how do you minimize that friction? And you minimize it by civic education, by getting people to question their own individual interests rather than treating their individual interests as paramount and unchallengeable, and you reduce it by having in positions of authority people who are looking not to the interest of their particular constituency, but to the public good, to the equitable as opposed to the particular. In the decade after Rousseau published
0: the Social Contract, his ideas on government found a welcome home in the hearts and minds of the Founding Fathers of the United States. The young nation needed a government, and its early political leaders drew inspiration from Rousseau when drafting the U.S. Constitution. John Adams, the second president of the United States, even referred directly to Rousseau's writings when he was drafting the Massachusetts
1: State Constitution. He recommends to his wife that she read Rousseau. Uh, he and Jefferson um, mention Rousseau in their correspondence. Adams's thoughts on government, which is the little pamphlet written in 1776 that becomes the template for several of the state constitutions and then by extension for the uh, federal constitution in 1787, has Rousseau all over it. I mean, it's very much, very clearly influenced by the idea that the purpose of government is to find the public interest. And coming out of the congregational culture that Adams was raised in, and that was still vibrant in New England in the 1760s and 1770s, it's perfectly understandable that you would see authority bubbling up. That's what congregational um, ecclesiology was all about. You gather your community together, and your gathered community makes the decisions as a, as a corporate body. So that's true of town government just as it's true of church government in, in colonial New England. And so for Adams, Rousseau's idea of finding a way in in good Augustinian fashion or Calvinist fashion to harness your will and make your will congruent with the public interest, that's the first principle of government. Jefferson, too, is a reader of Rousseau, and one can see both his pre-Declaration of Independence writings and his post-Declaration of Independence writings as strongly influenced by Rousseau in much the same way that Adams's are. In the mid-20th century, in
0: the aftermath of the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust, people began to look at Rousseau differently. His ideas about freedom became linked to totalitarianism. In 1958, the Russian philosopher Isaiah Berlin wrote an essay that linked Rousseau's ideas to the rise of totalitarianism.
1: And Berlin, in this essay, Two Concepts of Liberty, distinguished between what he called negative freedom, or freedom from government intrusion, and positive freedom. And he associated positive freedom with the idea that there was only one way to exercise your freedom, that you had to have your freedom channeled into a particular way, into a particular uh, form, and that the state would determine what that form should be. And so from Berlin's point of view, both Stalin's Soviet Union and Hitler's Germany were examples of how positive freedom led to totalitarianism. And Berlin traces the idea of positive freedom to Rousseau. This reading of Rousseau
0: has influenced how scholars and historians view the French Revolution. Maximilien Robespierre, an influential figure in the French Revolution, drew inspiration from Rousseau's ideas on freedom. In the early 1790s, Robespierre led the reign of terror that executed tens of thousands of French aristocrats and perceived sympathizers on the guillotine.
1: But I think it is striking to me that it is really in the wake of World War II. It is after the experience of Hitler's Germany and The fear of Stalin's Soviet Union, that Rousseau comes to be the theorist of totalitarianism. Until then, the progressives did not see Rousseau that way. The New Dealers did not see Rousseau that way. If you see him through his own texts, rather than the use to which Robespierre puts his texts, then I think he looks very different indeed. Rousseau's ideas have
0: continued to inspire people throughout history because he touched on something universal. Everyone wants to be free. But how can you have full freedom in a society where your impulses and desires have the potential to be harmful to your neighbor? Rousseau's ideas on government offer a vision of how we can coexist and experience freedom simultaneously.
1: I think perhaps the the, the anecdote, which might or might not be apoc- apocryphal, um, that the one time Kant missed his uh, five o'clock walk uh, through Königsberg was when he read Rousseau. And I think that makes sense because Rousseau makes vivid in Emile and almost irresistible in the social contract a vision that lines up almost perfectly with Kant's categorical imperative and with what Kant writes about um, Republican government. And I think many people have had that experience with Rousseau, that somehow when they read either of the discourses or Emile or the social contract or some of his other writings, which are seen as the founding text of the tradition of Romanticism. So the, here's a figure who's both of the central figure in the, one of the central figures in the Enlightenment and the founding father of Romanticism. A lot of people have that experience. When they read Rousseau, something clicks, light bulbs go off. They see something both critical about where they are and an ideal that they find so attractive as to be almost irresistible, and I don't know that there are too many other thinkers that you can say that about. There's nobody I would um, choose over Rousseau, I'll put it that way. I mean, it may be a plateau with a half dozen people on it, um, but I think he's up there in the pantheon. If we were going to do a Mount Rushmore of modern thinkers, I think he would be among the people we'd want to carve into that stone.
0: Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Ferrandu. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pechy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thank you for listening. See you next time.